You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over the past couple of months, our supporters over on Patreon have been fairly neglected. This is thanks to a couple of very poor decisions on my part. As it were, I'm back in the driver's seat now, and I've got some very good help coming my way to make sure that all of you get taken care of. Over the following few weeks, I'm going to make sure that everything gets put back in place. If you have any questions or concerns about any of that, please write me and let me know. I want to make sure that all of you are taken care of, because for all of our supporters out there, I really couldn't do it without you, and I love and appreciate all of you. And I want to apologize for any stress that this may have caused. First things first, it's been a while since we've shared any of our new patrons, given any of you a shout-out. So today I'd like to devote the intro to the episode to all of you who have gone without the recognition you very much deserve. Patrons like Mark, Thanduriel, Drew, Ed and Katie, Rich, Michael, Bill, Tony, Chad, Christina, Brian, Cabe, Buck, Conquervos, M, Don, John, Gregory, Connor, Decker, Oh How Very Blue, Scott, Jacob, Sam, Clayton, DJ Odom, and Vera Thura. Also, of course, our quartermasters, Dermot, Alex, Kevin, Nathan, and CT2391, as well as, naturally, our Commodores. Lee, Sean, Vasios, and Sir Rancid Cheese. To all of our supporters, and everyone who listens to the show, I know I say it at the end of every episode, but I really mean it with all the love in my heart. Thank you. We could not do it without you. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We've been talking about Captain Kidd and the Pirates of the Round in general for a long time now. Originally, today, I planned to do kind of an epilogue. To talk about the political and personal ramifications of his execution, but... I got so bored writing it that I just couldn't subject all of you to that. There's nothing in that story that's surprising at all. I mean, his wife, Sarah Kidd, was sad. Robert Culliford fades into historical obscurity, and the rich and powerful men who built Captain Kidd up and then brought him down... Well, they continued to be rich and powerful until they died after a long and fulfilling life. Not one of them ever got any ounce of comeuppance. There's no story there, though. If I were to take the next logical step in our narrative history, we would begin our look at the War of the Spanish Succession. There's also some exciting stuff involving a young privateer named Woods Rogers, as well as the further adventures of William Dampier, and... We will get to all of that pretty soon. 
But first I need a little palate cleanser. A brief aperitif, if you will. I'm planning something similar to what we did when we finished our look at the Buccaneers. When we shifted gears into the Barbary Pirates, but instead of letting this grow and mutate into a giant, uncontrollable monster of rambling storytelling, we really are going to keep this brief. I'm going to do this in three episodes. That's three episodes to look at the totality of ancient Mediterranean piracy. This is episode 297, The People of the Sea. The concept for today's episode began as kind of an essay on the nature of piracy itself. And then when the episode itself really started to take shape, it began with a look at the movements of Neolithic peoples in the greater Mediterranean region. So we're not going to talk about any of that, although later on we will look at the nature of piracy, especially when the Romans get involved and give us their Lex Piratus. But until then, this story is one of kind of a dance between what a state enterprise is and what a private enterprise is. The lines between vile pirate and noble adventurer are pretty blurry all throughout. I'd like to anchor today's discussion round about 1500 BCE. That's the height of the Mesopotamian and Mediterranean Bronze Age. At the time, in the eastern Mediterranean, there were three main cultural geopolitical groups. Two of these were large, centralized states. There was Egypt, down in Egypt, and the Hittite kingdom up in modern-day Turkey, which from here on out I'm going to call Anatolia. The third group was not, in any way, shape, or form, a centralized geopolitical unit. It really wasn't even culturally a single entity. The reason we today tend to look at them as a single group is because their tapestry of varied cultures and political organizations would go on to produce what we know today as ancient Greece. Round about 1500 BCE, the two main groups making up what we would later consider the Greeks were the Minoans on the island of Crete and the southern Aegean Sea, and the Mycenaeans up on mainland Greece. The Minoan civilization on Crete, well, they trace their heritage back to a semi-mythical King Minos. According to legend, King Minos cleansed the Aegean Sea and even the greater Mediterranean region of all of its pirates, especially those emanating from southern Anatolia. But the sources of this legend are all problematic. They come almost exclusively from Greek historians who, at the time, their people were dealing with their own problems emanating from Anatolia. It's pretty clear that when they're writing these histories about the great and legendary King Minos throwing his enemies back into the sea, they were doing a bit of propagandizing, a bit of wartime media to really get the blood pumping. But they weren't pulling these stories from nowhere. They're were problems with pirates dating way back into the mists of prehistory in the region. It's difficult, nearly impossible, to look at that period and say this is historical fact. 
But were we to do so, or at least were we willing to look at this semi-mythical period around, say, 3500 BCE, we might be able to pinpoint what some historians have called the very first pirates in all of recorded history. The first Mediterranean seafarers, and maybe the first pirates ever, come from a region called Caria, in southwestern Anatolia. And that whole coastline, I've mentioned it a couple of times now, that's going to be a problem for millennia to come. See, southern Anatolia has these mountain ranges that are rugged and difficult to cross, especially at the time. South of the mountains is the coastline, and that coast is rocky and infertile. You're not going to grow any grain in that region. But there are a ton of excellent harbors and hidden coves and even a few large and defensible ports. The people of southern Anatolia lived almost exclusively off of fishing, and as a consequence, their seafaring abilities got pretty good. You know, we're talking about open rowboats here that maybe had a sail to supplement their traveling speed, but these people of southern Anatolia could do pretty well with their open fishing craft. They could travel long distances along the coast and even fairly far out to sea. And some of these seafarers, most notably the Carians, decided to use that seamanship to take their fishing boats along the coast to other settlements. Settlements in more fertile lands, the kind of towns that had stores of grain and beer. You know, food was always the most important plunder they were after, but there were other things, of course. Lumber, which was hard to come by in Caria, as well as bronze tools and nails. And of course, as always, women. Before long, the people of Caria were supplied almost exclusively by raiding their neighbors, and eventually those who lived somewhat farther away. As their seafaring abilities improved, they raided cities as far away as Crete and even ancient Egypt. Now, those ancient Greek historians, we're talking about men like Herodotus here, well, they would have you believe that King Minos sailed his fleets out to meet the Carian raiders, and because he was favored by Poseidon, as the Greek historians would have named the god, King Minos was able to throw his enemies back into the sea. But that's not what happened. The coastal people of the ancient Mediterranean had to deal with pirates emanating from southern Anatolia for years, for centuries. No mythical king ever came along to destroy them. But those coastal peoples did come up with two main ways to deal with those Anatolian pirates. First, they moved their cities further inland, which seems like a simple solution. You know, move your large population centers further from the coast, make it harder for these coastal raiders to come to you. But it's a pattern that we see over and over again all around the region. The big cities were always located about 10 miles from the coast, or sometimes even more. Then they would build a second, smaller settlement on the coast, well-fortified, of course, but they would connect the two with a well-fortified road, a road that was lined with guard towers and even sometimes lined entirely with walls. 
And keep in mind, we're talking about major cities here. You know, Athens, which did not yet exist, well, it was built pretty far from the coast, and it had a port on the coast called Piraeus. And if you're wondering, there is a small etymological line to draw between Piraeus and pirate. The Greek root word for both Piraeus and pirate means to traffic across long distances, usually by sea. But it's not just Greek city-states, even the biggest, most important city of the entire ancient Mediterranean, Rome, was built along these lines. You know, they built the city of Rome in the middle of the Italian peninsula, in a swamp, and it was impossible to attack by sea. You'd have to march your armies way overland to get to Rome. But Rome was connected to the Mediterranean via a long, well-fortified road to a city called Ostia, which means simply the eastern city. And of course, Ostia was besieged and attacked by foreign navies and pirates all the time. But it was never that big a deal. You know, they might get something out of the storehouses there, but they're not getting at the, the grain stores in Rome or the gold stores in Rome. No, you had to have an overland marching army to do that. The second tactic that we see used against the Carrion Sea Raiders is kind of a classic. It's the same tactic that the Romans are going to use against the various barbarians who would attack Rome, and the same tactic that many European powers used against the Vikings. They paid the Carrions off. Every year a Carrion fleet would come by and you'd give them a big chest full of silver, but eventually... This led to the Mediterranean powers in the region hiring the Carrions to do some of their sea raiding. As the Bronze Age marched on, these Carrion sea raiders became the preeminent Mediterranean seaborne mercenaries. Do you need some ships to carry soldiers for your attack on Egypt or the Hittites? Well, hire the Carrions. In their best-known action at sea, here in the later years of the Bronze Age, the Carrions were hired to carry a Hittite army to attack ancient Egypt. The Egyptians were able to recognize the Carrion sailors, who they knew well, because the Carrions wore armor that gleamed in the sun like burnished gold. Now, it probably wasn't gold, it was probably just bronze, but... It goes to show that the Carrions were a wealthy and powerful band of mercenaries. They wore suits of full bronze armor. They carried swords instead of spears. They were powerful mercenaries who had become quite wealthy in that business. But should we consider the Carrion Sea Raiders pirates? You know, they did sail their ships to settlements along the coast and steal everything they could carry. They killed and raped and pillaged. It looks a lot like piracy. But were they hostis humani generis? Were they villains of all nations? It's a hard question to answer, but modern-day historian and scholar of the era, Philip de Souza, writes in Piracy of the Greco-Roman World, quote, it would be tempting to trace the history of ancient piracy well back into the second millennium BC, to the era when the peoples of the eastern Mediterranean began to travel regularly by sea and to trade across long distances. He continues, 
It might be argued that the earliest records of piracy are the legends preserved by the Greeks about Minos, the powerful ruler of Crete. Both Herodotus and Thucydides claim that Minos ruled the seas, and the latter says of him, it is likely he cleared the seas of piracy as far as he was able to improve his revenues. Herodotus also associates the Carians with Minos, saying that they were his subjects and that they manned his ships. But D'Souza concludes this passage, quote, I do not subscribe to this view of an historical Minoan Thessalocracy. The Minoan Thessalocracy, and a Thessalocracy is a kingdom of the sea, the Minoan Thessalocracy is a myth and has no sound historical basis. End quote. D'Souza goes on to debate the definition of piracy in the very ancient world. He, his conclusion seems to be that there really isn't yet enough of a distinction between state actors and independent naval contractors to really call anyone a pirate. Not yet. And that's probably right. You know, we probably shouldn't call the Carrions the first pirates ever. But I wanted to talk about them, because they were some of, if not the, first peoples in the world that proved just how lucrative raiding by sea could be. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Everything we've talked about so far is very debatable. It's way back in the mists of ancient, ancient history. The evidence always comes from much later sources, or a very few pieces of archaeological evidence to tie some of those later sources together. But as the Bronze Age marched on, the sea trade became more and more prominent, and piracy grew into something of a cottage industry for people from certain locations, mostly southern Anatolia. But even if the mythical King Minos did not throw the pirates back into the ocean, there is some evidence to suggest that by about 1200 BCE, the greater Greek region had mostly combated piracy in their home waters. That evidence, though, is really just a lack of evidence. There are very few records of any problems with pirates. See, by about 1200 BCE, there was another group of pirates that terrorized the Mediterranean. They were called the Sheridan people. Now, no one can agree on who the Sheridan people really were, or even where they came from. 
There are a few archaeological clues, mostly found on carvings in Egypt, that depict the Sheridan with very distinctive swords, shields, and helmets. Their swords were of a long triangular design that did not utilize a traditional crossguard. Instead of a crossguard, the blade itself was just wider than your hand right above the hilt. That way your enemy's blade would just slide off the sword away from your hand. The Sheridan shields were round wooden shields that were banded in bronze, and their helmets, very distinctive helmets, were horned. Not only that, their ships were open boats with a square sail that relied mostly on oar power. If all of that, that picture I just painted for you, reminds you of the Vikings, you're not alone. Now I want to be clear here, the Sheridan were not early Viking raiders. But in the 1800s, when a ton of archaeological excavation was going on in the region, some German historians made connections between the Sheridan and the Vikings. Not that they were the same people, but they said, hey, isn't that cool? These swords and shields and helmets kind of remind you of Viking artifacts. Because of these connections, the two traditions kind of began to blend in the popular consciousness. That's why Wagnerian operas, which were, you know, supposed to date from a time of ancient heroes, why they often had those heroes wearing horned helmets. And this evidence was mostly found in Egypt, but also along the Levantine coast, the Levant, so, you know, modern-day Israel and Palestine. But none of it was found in Mycenaean Greece. We know that the Sheridan people were not Greek, but for some reason they agreed to leave the Greeks alone. Probably, again, because they cut a deal. See, there are two main schools of thought about these Sheridan Sea Raiders. The first is the Eastern Theory. It states that the Sheridan Raiders came from an area on the Levant, kind of uh, in modern-day northern Israel, it's a perfectly plausible theory with a ton of good arguments and even some convincing archaeological evidence. But I like the Western theory. That's a theory that states that these sea raiders came from the region we know as Italy. And there are two main arguments to support this Western theory. First, there are some pretty convincing linguistic similarities between the words that the people at the time used for Sheridan, Sicilian, Sardinian, and Etruscan. The Etruscan people, of course, being the peoples of Western Italy before the Romans rose to prominence. The legendary kings of Rome were Etruscan kings. But this linguistic connection kind of reminds me of the connection between the Philistines and the Palestinians and the Phoenicians. They may have been literally the same people, but if they weren't, they were probably a very closely related people that were next-door neighbors. This Western theory suggests that the Etruscan people of Italy established colonies in places like Sardinia and Sicily, maybe even Corsica, where Napoleon is from. People from those colonies, Sicily in particular, ventured out into the eastern Mediterranean to raid the Levant and ancient Egypt. 
the Egyptians who recorded these sea raiders recorded their name as S-R-D-N. That's the best way to translate it. This was a convention in ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt that shortened the name of a people for inscription on a stone tablet or a stele. It's the same reason that there's that confusion over Philistine or Palestine. But the other argument for the Western theory is an archaeological argument. They've found swords and helmets in burial chambers in Sicily dating from this era that match the Egyptian inscriptions of the Sheridan people almost perfectly. Those swords and helmets were distinctive. But beyond that, they've found coins and other relics from places like ancient Egypt in those same tombs. So, you know, that could happen just through trade, but somehow they were getting money and goods from that part of the Mediterranean. Now, none of that is conclusive evidence, but it paints a vivid picture for me. And if it were true, we know that the Etruscans of the era did have some trading ties to Mycenaean Greece. It's entirely possible that the Etruscans from Sicily agreed to avoid attacking Greek shipping and their territory while they terrorized the trade routes between Egypt and Anatolia. But even if it wasn't these Etruscan Sicilians, somebody called the Sheridan with those distinctive swords was doing it, and it was becoming a real problem for the Hittites and the Egyptians. Which brings us to the big event of the Bronze Age, the end. The Bronze Age collapse is a huge topic, and there are still more unanswered questions than those to which we have answers. But we do know that there are a ton of natural causes that led to the decline of all of these great civilizations. They were having serious problems with earthquakes and massive tidal waves. They lived through a time of changing climate that led to crop failures and famine. All of that was bad, but they also had to deal with serious problems of piracy. By about 1100 BCE, the trade routes between the Hittites and the Egyptians were a shadow of what they had been, not entirely shut down, but very nearly. This wasn't because of a lack of ships or a lack of need, but because of those pirates. And this caused big problems. I mean, let's say that you had a crop failure. You didn't have any grain in your silo, but you are now unable to send to Egypt or anywhere else to get that grain. If you try, it's going to get stolen. Because everyone was having crop failures, including the Sheridans, wherever they were from. They really wanted, even needed, that Egyptian grain. And if they couldn't take it from ships transporting it across the sea, they had to go to the source. And the source for grain for all of the ancient Mediterranean period was Egypt. Now, we didn't know anything about these sea peoples until Napoleon found the Rosetta Stone, which was then taken to the British Museum and used to translate all of those ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. But once we were able to read hieroglyphs, we started seeing tons of references right about this period to these people of the sea. And that's the phrase that pops up over and over again, people of the sea. And it makes me think of nothing so much as that early modern pirate greeting. 
when a ship would hail them and say, From whence are ye come? And the pirates would respond, From the sea. And there are a ton of these groups active in the late Bronze Age, different ethnic and ethno-linguistic groups from all around the Mediterranean. You've got groups sailing down from the northern Aegean, which would be kind of like proto-Trojans. You've got other groups from further along the coast of Africa, and many from that region of southern Anatolia that gave us the Carian pirates. But the largest and most powerful of these groups were the Sheridans. It was the Sheridans that were feared more than anyone else. When they came to raid, these people of the sea took all the grain that their ships could carry, usually enough to sustain their people back home for about a year. But that leaves the people of Egypt with a problem. When you take that much grain from Egypt or wherever it is you're stealing it from, people there are going to starve to death. That means that there are going to be fewer people to sow and harvest next year's grain supply, which means that you will have a smaller supply of grain, and when those Sheridans come back and take everything they can carry, you'll have even less. Because everyone is growing hungry, fewer and fewer children survive into adulthood, and all of this just creates this negative feedback loop of population and grain production shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Within a very few years, the great grain producers of the Nile Delta were not non-existent, but almost. They were a shadow of what they had been, producing so little grain that it became unfeasible, uneconomical to raid them. Which means that the sea peoples who had been living off of all of this grain also began to decline. Since Egypt was such an important hotbed of grain production, that means that the people on the Levant, the people of Anatolia, and the people of Greece began to decline as well. The population of the eastern Mediterranean plummeted. That means that every hand was needed just for base survival. All of those luxury jobs, like guy who knows how to read, well, those jobs disappeared. The written word disappeared all around the Mediterranean. Egyptian sites of any historical significance were not built during this era. This is the beginning of what we call the Greek Dark Age. And we don't have much to say about piracy during the Greek Dark Age, not because it wasn't happening, but because no one wrote about it. It was a Dark Age. And that's how things went for a few centuries. It wasn't until the Dark Age began to draw to a close when the Phoenician peoples of the Levant, people who had an alphabet, began to trade in places like Greece and Egypt. They spread from their great cities like Tyre and built other great cities like Carthage. And the Greeks adopted that Phoenician alphabet. They began to have writing of their own. And that brings us to the most famous Greek writer of them all, Homer. Next time, Classical Greece, the Persians, and Alexander the Great. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show to friends or family. 
All of you make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Queen's Podcast, a podcast about women in power all throughout history, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. And if you'd like to take a survey about any of Airwave's shows, you can do so at podcastmonkey.com slash r slash airwave. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.